welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 60, recorded on February 20th, 2020. This episode is epic. Good evening, Jonathan and Peter. How's it going this fine Thursday night? Hey, Justin. It's been a good week. I've uh, been learning PowerShell and DSC and all kinds of things. Nice. We'll put that on your tombstone. He had to learn DSC and <laughs> PowerShell. And that's what did him in. That which does not kill you makes you stronger. Or makes you hate PowerShell more. One of the two. <laughs> I, I chose Linux for a very good reason a very long time ago. And uh, every, every day for the past couple of weeks has just reminded me that I definitely made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you wouldn't be a coder if you had chosen Windows. You'd be manually clicking all that stuff in a GUI. So versus trying to make it work in PowerShell. So that's yes, I think. Uh, I think as, that the, uh, as a resident Windows SME of uh, our cloud team at the day job, uh, I, I feel your pain. Yeah, <laughs> I think that the last time I, I gave a serious look at Windows was small business server in about 2001. And it was so horrendous with this whole like using SharePoint to manage ADs and all kinds of things. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's time to leave. Right, Windows small business server isn't, I don't That's it's like calling Windows Bob a real operating yeah. system. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was a rough one. And it's still rough even today. Luckily, the cloud takes all of that away from them. Do they still sell it? I think they do. Oh, I no. I haven't, I haven't looked in a long time. When us see, see. Windows Server 2016. Small business. Uh, small business edition for Windows Server 2016. Yeah. Yep, they nice. still do. For, meant up for 25 users and 50 devices. Pretty awesome. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's get on to more exciting news uh, than our reminiscing about how bad Windows Server Small Business Edition is. The first one is uh, that the uh, Amazon is won in court. Apparently, the U.S. judges have agreed with Amazon that there should be a stay uh, on the Jedi contract, and so they have stopped all work between the DoD and Microsoft. Uh, Judge Patricia Campbell-Smith issued a preliminary injunction but did not release her written opinion yet. She also ordered Amazon to post $42 million in the event the injunction was issued wrongly. Uh, this had a pretty negative impact to uh, Microsoft's share price, uh, dropping $17 billion in market capitalization in just five minutes after this was announced. So uh, uh, a pretty uh, unfortunate turn of events if you were on Microsoft stock. Or if you were shorting, you're a really good uh, position. The weird thing is it didn't touch Amazon stock in the slightest. Yeah, shouldn't have that gone down by $42 million? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or up very slightly with, a, with, with the expectation that they're going to win a huge contract, right? Yeah, yeah. or up $17 billion. Yeah, I don't, have, I don't understand how the stock market works. That's why I have computers do my, the investing for me, because I don't get it. That's why they call it market psychology. I completely understand why they went to do this, because $40 million is, uh, I mean, it sounds like a lot, and it's more than the minimum contract value is going to be for Jedi to begin with. But, um, I mean, once you get your foot in the door with the government contracts... They just keep flowing in. So if they won Jedi, they'd almost certainly continue to win more and more business as as the years go by. And uh, $40 million is is nothing compared with what the real potential is for for that business over the next decade or so. That's true. I just wish I had $42 million to throw around. As a, as a, just in case I was wrong, <laughs> insurance policy. Yeah. It's <laughs> nah. pretty interesting. So we'll see what happens with that. I assume Microsoft will appeal. Uh, or the DoD will appeal, or they will appeal jointly. Uh, that'll probably happen in the next week or so. So we'll keep you posted here on the Jedi news. The dark side is winning. <laughs> uh, moving on to other AWS news. Uh, if you're using uh, organizations, there's a new feature for you to use Amazon CloudFormation stack sets uh, for multiple accounts. 
This allows you to create a stack set in Amazon organizations that can manage one or multiple AWS accounts. And you can use this to deploy centralized IAM roles, provision EC2 instances, or Lambda functions across AWS regions and accounts across your organization. Uh, of course, stack sets simplify the configuration of resources when accounts are joining or removed from the org. And the simplified ability to create and define services centrally and orchestrate across an entire organization or use a powerful feature for many organizations. Yeah, I keep telling my customers that you know they, they look at OUs and they're like, oh, I don't need service control policies, so I don't need OUs. And I keep replying with, you know, this, uh, uh, this is cl- it's not about what's there today for organization. It's, what about what, it's about what's going to be there like tomorrow. And they're just going to keep adding these features for large organizations to leverage to organize all their accounts. So it's super important right now to nail down your organization's strategy and and start organizing your accounts this way. I mean, moving an account into an OU is pretty trivial. It's it's everything after that that's hard. So yes, I agree. I think if you if they're just going with a flat organization, that's maybe not too bad. But yeah, if they have want to have any level of CSPs and then potentially have to change that later, I think that is risky. And so I agree with you completely. Get those OUs structured correctly. I feel like there's some some weirdness about this whole thing. I mean, uh, with organizations, I, I, mean, I think Amazon clearly missed the boat with organizations years ago, and it it took them a long time to even launch the feature. And even now, it's it's still very immature. Um, I, I would like to think that I could create just within organizations itself policies which I could apply to all my accounts without having to use CloudFormation. Like why can't why can't I I create an IM policy at the organizational level and push it out to all accounts without having to use this extra layer of orchestration? Um, I mean, I, I I kind of forgive them for for that a little bit because they were the first people to market with anything close to this kind of scale of accounts or any any of this kind of stuff. The flip side of that is they've done a really good job of making sure that this actually works for people's real business use cases because it's it's fine to say great you can apply it to all of your organizations today. All your all your accounts today, you know, you can you can deploy VPC, you can deploy policies, you can do this stuff in all the accounts that are currently in the organization. But I think the really forward thinking part about this is that you can you can pre-stage these configurations so that if you add an account in the future, it automatically deploys the same resources. And that's that's a real win. You could do this prior with CSPs, but the permissioning to get things to work cross account wise was a bit difficult and you had to do some trial and error and really work on your IAM policies to allow you to invocate the, the things that, uh, across the different account sets. In this new stack set option, they actually manage that for you uh, to address all of those kind of weird gaps and weird edge cases around cross-account roles and how you invoke them and all that. So that's, that's one of the advantages of this kind of new service with stack sets to kind of handle that for you. You can still do it the old way where you self-service those permissions and you have to then kind of do this more manually. Um, this is just a way to make it simpler for people, and it's kind of built into CloudFormation because it's probably easiest for them to build that orchestration there. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't disagree. That's always a, always nope. a positive. <laughs> hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft as your partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod.
www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right. Well, the, uh, the next feature is uh, an interesting one here. So they have enabled the ability to multi-attach uh, provisioned IOPS uh, EBS volumes to multiple EC2 instances. Uh, this is for customers running Linux uh, on EC2. You can take advantage of provisioning IOPS uh, EBS volumes to multiple EC2 instances. Each EBS volume can be configured to a maximum of 16 EC2 instances in a single AZ. Uh, Nitro supports attaching multiple multi-attach EBS volumes as well. And applications can attach multiple uh, attach volumes as non-boot data volumes with reading and write permissions. Uh, a safety tip here, uh, your application, though, must take care of all the write ordering to maintain storage consistency, um, or you need to leverage a third-party solution like GFS or Veritas file system, uh, as this is not a feature if you're a faint of heart on losing encrypting your data. <laughs> There's a lot of gotchas on this. Uh, no additional cost for multi-attach EBS, but uh, do remember you are paying for provisioned IOPS, which can get very, very expensive very quickly. I, I, it's weird that you have to have I, provisioned IOPS to get this feature, but it's so, I'm shocked it took this long to give us the opportunity to, uh, to leverage this feature and take responsibility for our own data. I think we all understand what happens when two boxes write to the same block storage, but technology out there to help us with that, as well as just the super basic need of wanting to get block stores that we could read from, uh, from many servers at once. So what do you think the real use case for this is? Because one thing notably missing from this blog post is, uh, you know, why they released a feature. I mean, I, I know that mounting the same volume on multiple instances could be great for sharing massive amounts of data without having to duplicate it for every single host in a cluster or... Um, with, with, with GFS, you get you get a really good shared file system among cluster for, for sharing state for things. But they they're kind of like missing the real use case for this, which is it's kind of surprising for me. I mean, any clustering technology that takes care of you know connecting multiple instances to the same block storage now you can use instead of being completely you know not just not being able to run that workload in the cloud is number one. And then to me, the other one is just wanting to write from one node potentially, but read from lots of nodes, like for lots of CMS type um, technologies, where the only alternative now is to do like a EFS or a, a SIF share and run your own file server, shared file server. This just takes all that out of the equation. I mean, I think there's there's some interesting use cases that can come out of big le- uh, machine learning and big data where you need potentially to have um, training data or you know for multiple nodes to be able to access at the same time versus using EFS for that. I think that's a use case. I can see some SQL Server use cases where potentially uh, a read-only slave is actually able to pick up its uh, the, you know the tran logs or different files for that replication via this mechanism. So there's there's definitely some interesting use cases. I do sort of feel like this is maybe step one of a enabling feature to enable a bunch of other things they plan to announce later in the year. Um, and I do sort of expect to kind of maybe see it come down to normal EBS volumes, but for right now, because IO is a bit um, unguaranteed in normal EBS, that this was a way to kind of guarantee some level of throughput to 16 boxes, where you know EBS might be limited in other ways. But uh, I do think there is something coming here. It just is a matter of I don't know what it is yet, and I suspect that when it announces, well, I'll go, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense uh, that they did that. You kind of hit the nail on the head with the with the um, the IOPS thing, I think. It kind of goes to show that provisioned IOPS aren't a host 
necess- uh, necessarily a host constraint, but when you provision IOPS, it's actually IOPS at the storage level. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're going to split this thing into 16 hosts, then you need to provision those IOPS, and that's, that makes a lot of sense. But it's only for Linux right now, not Windows. And I, my first thought on this, having spent uh, three weeks working with Windows systems again, is um, Windows clustering with shared file systems, but it doesn't support Windows yet. Um, I, I, I think I'd still like to see um, like an iSCSI attachment because then at least I can attach to this volume from different AZs. This is still within a single AZ, which is still quite constraining. I think we're looking at the very early days of a set of features that's going to come around this in the next year. Uh, single AZ, they'll eventually go multi-AZ. You know, they'll add in non-provisioned IOPS potentially as well. I, th- I think, like I said, I think we're just seeing the tip of an iceberg here that has a lot of other really interesting use cases that might get enabled by this in the future. Yeah, I'm really surprised that Azure haven't announced something similar. Ha <laughs> uh, ha. Well, uh, actually, they did. Uh, so apparently, they're announcing the preview of Azure Shared Disks uh, for clustered apps. Uh, they actually launched this the day before uh, Amazon launched their feature, but uh, we we go Azure, AWS first, and then Azure. So that's just unfortunate timing. Uh, Azure Shared Disk is the industry's, or at least the day before, was the industry's first shared cloud block storage. Uh, Azure Shared Disks enabled the next wave of block storage workloads migrating to the cloud, including the most demanding enterprise applications currently running on premises or on SANS. This includes clustered databases, parallel file systems, persistent containers, and machine learning applications. Uh, the unique capability enables customers to run latency-sensitive workloads without compromising on well-known deployment patterns. Uh, Azure shared disks are available on premium SSDs and support disk size including and greater than P15s, or, which is 256 gigabyte blocks. Uh, support for Azure UltraDisk will be available sometime soon to make your Azure UltraDisk uh, world more complicated. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if this is the t- actually not to completely ignore the Azure announcement, but I wonder if this Amazon technology is actually just exposing the underlying technology from Aurora to uh, end users. Isn't Aurora does have multi-writer though? But the the application could be could be aware of that though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. true. You you have it right ordered in the app. I I, th- I think um, uh, what it goes to show is that the Nitro platform that they built is what's enabling these new features, whereas previously they couldn't have supported this mm. type of thing. Interesting. For Azure, though, specifically, um, I, I would have thought they would have had this from the beginning. Um, I mean, Windows clustering with shared file systems on, on SANS has been uh, like a, a core piece of, of uh, Windows infrastructure for a very long time. So I think they sort of had it before because they were partnering with um, like NetApp and other file system vendors, you know, with a ta- with NetApp actually attaching NetApp storage to the Azure cloud. So they were they were providing it to you through third party services and third party partnerships. This is the first time they've offered it to you natively through an Azure level service. Uh, revisiting our uh, Azure SQL Server performance benchmarks, uh, Azure has doubled down on those benchmarks with GigaOM. Uh, and they have announced uh, released a new study that they did in February. Uh, this time they did update the instance types, uh, and at least time they tried to match them. So they used the E32AS V4 with the P30 premium storage drives versus the R5A 8x large instance. Um, so when I looked at these servers, they are identical in the number of uh, vCPUs, uh, but the AWS instance has half the amount of RAM, so it can't cache nearly as much as the other one, it is interesting they chose AMD versus Intel. I was, I'm a little miffed by they did that, but that's what they chose to go with. Uh, again, I think we can stick with our advice we said last time is that you, and Amazon's advice is that you need to test your own workloads with your own configurations uh, on the clouds before you trust these third-party vendors. 
Yeah, it's pretty easy to to rig these things. And even if you're not trying to rig them, um, it's it's so variable. I, I never put any stock in these type of studies. Yeah, they use the uh, the same proprietary testing benchmark that only you can only get if you're an Azure partner or Azure uh, you know, vendor being paid. So you know it's one of those things you can't even reproduce these particular tests, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. And then the last Azure story, Azure Offline Backup with Azure Data Box now in preview. Uh, with a massive need to transfer large data sets to Azure, coupled with a large backups research reaching terabytes in scale, Azure has tended, uh, intends to solve this with the new Azure Data Box to Azure Backup. Uh, this is a preview program for offline initial backups of large data sets via the Azure Data Box. You can seed large backups up to 80 terabytes per server offline to Azure Recovery Services vaults, with subsequent backups taking place over the network. Uh, key benefits of this are it's simple, it's built in, secure, and efficient. Super important for backups, right? You want it simple and make sure it works. I'm not sure what to make of this exactly. Uh, they say that they have uh, like a, an out of band solution for kickstarting the backups of very large data sets. Yeah, so basically they're giving you storage you put on premise, you point your, your Com Vault or your semantic net backup at this. You do your initial backup up to 80 terabytes, you ship that to them, they load it. And then you do all your subsequent backups via the network. Okay. So, I mean, this thing revolutionary, but it's definitely um, somewhat helpful for companies that want to use that method to get to the cloud. Um, it seems more like a use case than the technology. I mean, the data box has been around for a while. So, I mean, using it to do backups is kind of like, well, isn't that what it was always designed for? Just like Snowball. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but now it's sort of integrated, right, into the backup service. Okay. You don't have to do all the hard work of putting in an object store and then figuring out how to get it backed up. I mean, after weeks and weeks of no Azure stories, Jonathan, I can't give you good Azure stories. I can only give you <laughs> what they give us. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it makes sense. And migrating, uh, I, th I think migrating old backups we, we have a big challenge with right now is um, it, it's, it's great that you can migrate current data to the cloud and that's really easy. But if you've got years worth of backups in a different format, whether it's a proprietary format or something else, like migrating those things to the cloud and actually getting out of your data centers is, is probably the next big challenge to be solved. So maybe they can start working on that. Well, moving on to our good friends in Mountain View at Google. Uh, there you have several news things coming out this week, which is pretty interesting. The first one, uh, they have made running workloads on dedicated hardware better. Uh, several new features are coming to their sole tenant nodes. Uh, sole tenants, of course, are great for companies that require physical separation of compliance, high-performance needs, or have licensing compliance requirements like Oracle. Uh, these new features include the ability to live migrate within a fixed node pool for being, uh, bring your own licenses. So you can set up you know, five or ten of these uh, sole tenant nodes and you can actually migrate workloads between them. This allows you to do patching and things without taking downtime. The node group autoscaler allows you to autoscale uh, sole tenant nodes up and down uh, based on your workload requirements. And you can also now migrate workloads between sole and multi-tenant nodes uh, with these new features. So if you are one of those companies that needs this flexibility and capability, there's quite a few new features for you on GCP. That's really awesome. It really, I mean, auto-scaling the hardware that you run the virtualized instances on is, is great. But I think live migration is, is probably even better than that because um, it solves the problem of, well, my hardware's gone bad, it needs maintenance. I don't have to shut down my long-running instance. It's busy doing something important with everybody else. You've got to shut the thing down and then boot it back up on, on new hardware. So now live migration is, um, I, I think GCP are probably the first people to offer live migration. Other than VMware? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in the cloud, obviously. Yeah, yeah. 
It is. It's super awesome. And it still has its challenges for sure. I mean, it, you, you've got a busy VM with lots of cores and lots of you know, the SQL server or something like that. It it takes a long time to do live migration and sometimes it's not successful, but providing a service that, off, that offers that is, uh, is really cool. I hope everyone does that in the future because these notifications that your, your hardware has gone bad and you need to reboot your service is, is real pain. I don't want to have to worry about that. Yeah, I don't want to worry about that either. All right, moving on to our next cool story. Uh, logging has uh, got a new friend. That's tracing. And this apparently love at first insight, according to Google. I love the, uh, the pun there. Uh, <laughs> Google has previously announced stack driver logging. And logging has many capabilities across the Google Cloud as well as the ability to pull data from any other cloud or on-premise. Uh, now with the new stack driver trace available, uh, this apparently grew up at Google and has a bit more particular about data. Uh, but by adding trace to your logging, you now have the ability to show the complete request. The user has full stack observability. Trace features include the ability to show logs in line for each service call, drill into logs that relate to a particular service in the logs view, search across the entire request, see logs from the entire request, and drill into a trace of the complete request, and diagnose the root cause of errors in the trace UI. Uh, so tracing is a pretty great feature if you haven't used it. Uh, things like Zipkin or the Open Tracing Framework. Uh, this is now all natively supported for you in the Google Stack Driver solution. So pretty nice. Cool APM for for Stack Driver. That's awesome. Yeah, we didn't we didn't talk about uh, tracing with Mike Kelly from Blue Medora, but uh, we should we should ask them what they were doing in that space. But they're going to do something cool with this as well. Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities or custom integrations, and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Blue Medora introduces BindPlane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. BindPlane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic, or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations, all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bluemedora.com slash cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes, and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Blue Medora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plane seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. Not all is, uh, is completely rosy over in the Google Cloud. Uh, apparently, they are laying off about 50 employees as it refocuses and restructures the Google Cloud. They didn't give those exact numbers, but that was what was uh, reported in the market and what people kind of collected from Twitter. Uh, the release they communicated organization changes uh, to a handful of teams that will improve how we market, partner, and engage with customers in every industry around the globe. Uh, speculation that this is required to shift focus towards services for large enterprise customers. And reports indicate there is also a focus effort to focus on non-U.S. markets as part of this transition. The strategy includes putting its AI work to, uh, to, into specific verticals on retail, healthcare, financial services, media, and entertainment, and manufacturing. Small reorg for a company of the size of Google, but still. Yeah, you think it's not even worth the bad press for it, just uh, find another job for it. Well, that's what they said in the article, was that most of them would be hired into different divisions or organizations inside Google. So why why even report it? Yeah. They had to file those things here in California if you're a certain size organization, uh -huh. so that's what they do. Gotcha. But again, if they're, if they're moving internally, it's not really a layoff, other than it's a position elimination, but they're not going to go on to unemployment or anything like that, is my guess. That is strange. I mean, even if they're focusing on other areas in the world the cloud enables you to work from anywhere so <laughs> um laying off 50 people so that you can pivot your business 
to uh, elsewhere seems a little strange. Like maybe maybe there's more to it than than the uh, than we do we know right now. That's very possible. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that they would focus on international as kind of the big growth area for them. But I guess if you consider that U.S. is a more mature cloud market and that Azure and AWS have kind of majority market share, maybe there's more opportunity for upside internationally in the short term that they can focus on to get market share and then kind of come back to the U.S. as necessary or as customers want it. I think that's exactly it. I think they feel like they've already lost and, and they're not going to be able to catch up in the U.S. And with, with the emerging markets in um, Africa and, um, and Asia, you think out there, they, they stand a pretty good chance of, of winning a lot more business. Yeah, yeah, potentially. I think you know China and Alibaba are still a big risk to that strategy, though, because they have a lot of uh, a lot of money influence in the Asian markets. Mm. More than just money influence. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Google is. Uh, even though they're laying off people or, or reorganizing, they are getting more epic, and that's with the AMD Epic chips. Uh, they have a new AMD Epic-based compute engine family now in beta for you. Uh, this is uh, using the new, this is the new N2D family uh, built atop the second gen AMD Epic processors, or as the codename is Rome for these. The N2D VMs are a great option for both general purpose workloads and workloads that require high memory bandwidth. These are available to you today in US Central 1, Asia Southeast 1, and Europe West 4. Uh, they start uh, with configurations at 2V CPU with 8 gigs of RAM and go all the way up to 224 CPUs and 896 gigabytes of RAM. Uh, pricing for that small guy was about uh, 0.08 uh, per hour for on-demand or 0 0.02 uh, for preemptible. And that very large 224 CPU, 896 gigs of RAM is a whopping $9.46 an hour or a preemptible price is $2.30 an hour. So those are some pricey boxes. That's a pretty big friggin' box, though. <laughs> it is. I actually uh, searched for how much it would cost me to buy one of these Epic, uh, only only a 64-core uh, Epic processor for, uh, you know, the, the home lab kind of thing. How much? And uh, how much was it? Are you sitting down? I'm, yes. I'm... AMD Epic 64-core, two and a quarter gigahertz, which is not... Not not huge, right? Uh, turbos up to three point four gigahertz, seven and a half thousand dollars. Just for the chip? Just for the chip. <laughs> <laughs> is that the is that the new Rome processor? Or yes. Is that the Gen One. Nope, wow. that's that's the Rome. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So in this case, if you wanted to get the two thousand or two hundred twenty-four V CPU and the eight hundred ninety-six gigs, that would that roughly works out to be about seven thousand dollars on demand, or seventeen hundred dollars uh, preemptible. So you could get. Uh, basically that for three months, Jonathan, for the same price. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great payoff, though. If, if, I mean, I'm sure, that, I'm sure Google are not paying this, the same price at that scale. But, uh, you know, after, after a thousand hours, it's paid for itself. So, Yeah. Ooh, that's a, that's a pricey, hey, pricey chip. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you are also in the market for Anthos and using the Anthos capabilities on-premise, uh, you might start asking some questions around you know, the infrastructure that you can run Anthos on top of. And so uh, Google has come to the answer for that with the new qualifications for partner storage solutions that are Anthos ready. Uh, these first set of partners to achieve the Anthos ready storage qualification are Dell EMC, of course, HPE, NetApp, Portworks, uh, Pure Storage, and a company called Robin.io, uh, which I had never heard of before. Uh, storage partners have met uh, multiple criteria, including demonstrated core Kubernetes functionality, including dynamic provisioning of volumes via open and portable Kubernetes storage APIs, a proven ability to manage storage across cluster scale-up and scale-down scenarios, and a simple deployment experience following uh, Kubernetes best practices. Uh, and actually, I have a quote from somebody I actually know this time. Uh, Anthony Lai, Senior Vice President and General Whoa. Manager of Cloud Data Services at NetApp, who I have met with and talked with many, many times. 
uh, has a quote here saying, speed is the new scale in the world upset by digital transformation. The complex reality is that data and resources live anywhere and everywhere. We're excited to expand our support for customers on Anthos running in hybrid and multi-cloud configurations as part of the Anthos Ready Storage Initiative. Together, Google Cloud's Anthos NetApp Trident with Kubernetes Ready Storage offers a proven solution that helps customers manage their data on public cloud, on-premises, and in hybrid cloud environments. What the biggest steaming pile of bull hunky-dunk is this? Come on. <laughs> it's storage. So, so it's, it's Anthos. Anthos is a piece of software. And, and, they're, and they're, they're marketing it like it requires some amazing, amazingly performance storage on the back end. Your storage requirements are based on your application. Nothing more than that. What a, what a steaming pile of crap. Hey, it's a way to get money out of vendors to be certified. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> well, yeah, what a joke. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Tell us how you really feel. Yeah, yeah I don't think you're angry enough. Uh, I will say that the uh, having seen the NetApp uh, Kubernetes capabilities, uh, it's the tr NetApp Trident stuff is actually pretty good. So it uh, is. Are, I know, and, and, and I'm not. I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that that EMC sounds have been fantastic for years, or HPE, or anybody else. But but the fact that they're creating a certification for something which is just basic storage at the kind of levels of performance that people should expect every day is just it just kills me. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to take this Azure Stack uh, certification <laughs> article out of the show notes. Uh, we'll skip talking about that today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Jonathan, that is the way of the world. And uh, you know, since the early days of FlexPod and all these things, oh, these, yeah. these certifications and testing is all part of the business of hardware, unfortunately. It's just a marketing piece. It's nothing it more. Is. Well, let's move on from marketing to a different type of marketing, and that is dashboarding for Stackdriver cloud monitoring. Uh, of course, all your executives love those nice, pretty dashboards telling you that your CPUs and memory are running out uh, or your disk space is filling up. And so Google is pleased to announce the new Stackdriver monitoring dashboards API is generally available for Google Cloud. The dashboard API lets you read the configurations for existing dashboards, create new dashboards, update existing dashboards, and delete them. Uh, a common use case for dashboard APIs is to deploy a dashboard developed in one monitoring workspace to one or more additional workspaces for things like dev to prod uh, or different uh, peg environments. Dashboards can be downloaded as code and get versioned as well. I, this is awesome. I hope it spreads further than just Google because I think just as engineering deploy new versions of software, they should, I think they should also deploy the dashboards which monitor their software and they should be managed as code just like everything else in, uh -huh. the, in the pipeline. So this is great. I'm I'm on a seesaw with you, Jonathan. You're mad now. You're thinking this is great. I can't I can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't require Dell EMC storage though, so it's I'm, I can get I can get behind this. No, but okay. but but seriously, de defining dashboards as code instead of having somebody pointy clicky through the whole thing, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can you can lifecycle the whole thing. You can have dashboards tied to specific versions of the applications that are running natively without having to you know do clunky stuff in Splunk or anything else. So yeah. I like it. We built uh, something similar to this for Elasticsearch, uh, but we were too early for the market. Yeah. <laughs> now, we, now we can pull that off, off dust it up, and, and ship it. Yep. You're like xDrive. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's a question here in an opinion piece. Uh, is Google cooling on open source foundations? Uh, Google has been apparently one of the biggest tech uh, supporters of open source software, but customers, partners, and members of the open source community say the company is slowly shifting its priorities. Uh, they referenced Istio as a perfect example of this. This is a project built by Google, IBM, and Lyft in May 2017. They discussed donating it to a nonprofit foundation, which is common practice. Uh, but Google contain, controls six of the ten seats of the steering committee, and they agreed to table the decision until it had found its footing. 
Uh, of course, by 2019, everyone's using Istio. And with that momentum, Google has continued to make vague promises to its partners about donating Istio to a foundation. The most natural place would have been during KubeCon, but Google blindsided IBM and other partners by postponing any donation talk until an undetermined date. Uh, there's a quote here from Google. Google Cloud and the community are actively investing in continued project growth, sustainability, and adoption for both native and Istio. Transparency, governance, and inclusion are implemented across both projects to ensure distributed decision-making as much as possible. We welcome new community members, and anyone invested in the success of either project can help influence direction, much as we encourage in GoLang, TensorFlow, and other projects. Uh, of course, by maintaining this control, Google uh, could prevent cloud providers uh, and integrated service providers and others that make Kubernetes successful from embracing Istio or provide GCP with a competitive advantage. And some of the speculation around this is that uh, Google's a little upset they gave away Kubernetes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so this is a. This is the area where the golden goose was given away, and now they're not sure they want to give away Knative and uh, Istio. Uh, and this may be a way for them to get dominance over AWS or Azure uh, without giving it away. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, as a public company, you, you have a responsibility to shareholders and building technology like this and then basically giving it away for free and only monetizing the use of the technology in your own cloud, which is it, not all bit uh, like, very successful right now. Uh, it must be quite disappointing for shareholders. And I'm sure there's some some pressure back to, um, to 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 sort of capitalize on the intellectual property side of things rather than the actual usage of these tools. Um, yeah, it must be it must be a difficult situation to be in because because everyone looks to Google as thought leaders and tech leaders, and if they stop providing solutions like this, then I, I think it'll they'll, they'll take a hit to their reputation. Um, people won't want to go and work for them because people do embrace the thought of um, of open source in general. So it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a tough line they have to navigate. Yeah, there was a really the final paragraph of this article, and I'm going to directly quote this uh, versus paraphrasing like we normally do. Uh, Google doesn't have many advantages over AWS among the cloud buying public, and if Google loses the open source community, it is likely to lose the war. Either way, if Istio never lands at a foundation, Kurian, or Thomas Kurian, will have sent a clear message. If you work with Google on open source project it controls, you're working for Google. So that would be a devastating uh, impression to kind of cross the open source market uh, in a really negative connotation. So this could be their AWS doesn't contribute to open source, uh, you know, flack (laughs) for the Google Cloud is that if you're not going to open these source, these things to community foundations, uh, you know, you're not really building open source tools. So it'd be really interesting to see how this kind of plays out over the next few months and if this this messaging continues to go out there uh, in a big way. Yeah, I also wonder if it's just Istio. Like, we see there, we see a lot of announcements around Anthos. This is the one product where they are, uh, there's a pretty significant premium put on the service over, you know, the underlying uh, compute resources i just wonder if it's they're like hey this one this one we're not going to give away well it's also knative as well which is their ability to run lambda type functions on top of kubernetes so it's it's not just istio it's it's also Ooh, knative. Both, right uh both of them are in this article so yes the, these are the only examples they have in this article so far but we'll see as the kubernetes ecosystem continues to mature if that starts changing right well that is it for new news peter do you want to take us to the lightning round which is not really the lightning round anymore, but yes. It's still lightning. It's just lightning. a slightly different format. But uh, again, we are, we are seeking your feedback if you like the new format. We're 
we're going to try it for this week and then next week, and then we'll reevaluate. So we have, we have three weeks of this, and so then we'll see if we like it or not. <laughs> Kubernetes is now available on the Azure stack. So you can run Kubernetes on Azure for those who want the complexity of running Kubernetes on top of Azure, on top of Dell or HPE. It's now generally available. And may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> and apparently, apparently Jonathan will come after you. So watch out. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so for the sensitive listeners, Amazon Cognito now supports case sensitivity. In a shocking move, Amazon has embedded its AWS Systems Manager agent into ECS optimized Linux 2 AMIs. Now, if only they would provide documents to actually manage upgrade the agent. You can now enable Amazon EC2 hibernation for on-demand and reserved instances through AWS CloudFormation. Will it still tell us if there's six more weeks of winter left? <laughs> AWS System Manager now enables auto-approval of patches by a specific date, which means that if you want to destroy a laptop with a bad patch from two months ago, you can do so with ease. What would Punk Satani Phil say about that? I know, he's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> He's sleeping, yeah. You open one eye, it's like, yep, forget this. Amazon MSK has increased the default broker limit per cluster to 30, allowing you to hang yourself in a Kafkaesque way even sooner. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right, so Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports joining domain across uh, AWS accounts and VPCs using Managed AD. That's, that's pretty awesome until something breaks. AWS Security Hub has now launched new security checks to help you meet PCR requirements. But hopefully it's better than Macy that didn't detect me uploading Justin and Peter's social security numbers to a public bucket just last week. Damn it! On the bright side, all those people who were working using your SSNs, they are paying for your retirement. I just hope somebody steals my identity and I get a pleasant surprise that my credit score went up because of it. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, when they first open those new credit cards in your name, and then when they max them out, you won't. It doesn't help you out. You never know. You never know. Yes. Maybe they're maybe they're slightly better than me. And back to the real world. As everyone knows, DDoS attacks don't target dead hosts. AWS Shield Advanced now detects that the service is dead with health checks, and this somehow makes us more secure. Oh, good. The console mobile app for AWS now supports API Gateway, CloudTrail, IAM, Lambda, SQS, because. What I want to do when I'm away from my computer, I want to debug API gateway invocation errors on a five-inch screen. Sounds amazing. Azure continues to impress with cutting-edge networking features from the early 90s. Network address translation is now available for preview only in Azure Virtual Networks. What comes next? Wow. Are they going to do go for port address translation next? Maybe a little pat and net action going on, yeah. And what I can only describe as the much worse version of Dynamo Global Tables, you can now restore Amazon Dynamo ta DB table backups as new tables in other AWS regions. I look forward to a Rube Goldberg-esque Lambda step function solution to help me build my global spanner competitor with AWS very soon. AWS has added granularity to the concurrent executions CloudWatch metric to now support functions, versions, and aliases. Only they had done this before they announced provision concurrency. That was probably the worst monitoring solution for, their, for Lambda ever. <laughs> Amazon now allows me to consider public holidays when forecasting anything. But I do wonder how National Clam Chowder Day will affect our podcast listeners next week. Is it really? Absolutely. Two cans of Budin Clam Chowder in my cabinet. I'm going to eat them. Azure Firewall now controls the transmission, the horizontal, and the vertical, and will identify a million ports and rules, plus apparently now virtual Azure networks. Coupled with NAT support, they're really innovating. 
I love the outer limits. You just totally reminded me of the, of the outer limits. I know, That's where I stole uh, that from. I know what I'm going to do tonight. <laughs> just the reboot or the original? That's the that more important question. Yeah. I don't know. The reboot was pretty good. I mean, like they both stand alone very equally. Like the new, the new, um, what's the, what's the other one with the, the twilight zone, the new twilight zone doesn't really compare to the original twilight zone with the outer limit reboot they did in the nineties and the originals, they fit well together. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a tales from the crypt fan myself. Uh, Jonathan, you already, you know, buried the lead of next week is national chowder week. Uh, but what else is coming up the next week? You guys that we're excited about. I'm prepping for another Another out of the country trip to uh, just to Mexico for a wedding. So I don't know if there's any uh, if there's any cloud tasks that are going on in Tulum, Mexico. But I'm assuming I'm probably just going to be there hanging out on the beach. Ah, well, uh, you know that means that the window is closing very quickly for the follow Ryron get a sticker <laughs> uh, task. So if you are <laughs> have yet to follow Ryron one on uh, on Twitter, it's R Y R O N O one. Uh, you will not get that sticker when Ryan guest hosts to cover. That's Peter. right. So do keep that in mind. Do do keep that in mind. Uh, next week is the most important or least important, depending on how you look at it, security conference of the year uh, with the RSA conference 2020 happening in San Francisco. Uh, so I do suspect that we might have some security news uh, next week here on the show. So I am looking forward to see what uh, that happens. I do like to ignore all of the LinkedIn emails coming to me from all the vendors saying, Hey, if you're going to be at RSA next week, uh, we'd love to get together. Uh, Cause I am not going to RSA. Uh, I've never been to RSA and I've never to go to RSA. Really? <laughs> never. Have you avoided it? Uh, I find excuses not to go. Oh my goodness. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, February 24th to 28th, uh, you can go join. Uh, the RSA conference. Yeah, good. Just make sure you take your uh, spare laptops with you and don't get hacked. Not quite as bad as Black Hat, but... Um... Uh, apparently, two days ago, Symphony Technology Group entered a definitive agreement with Dell Technologies to acquire RSA. Wow. What? That's news. Really? Yeah. I, I just went to the RSA uh, website and there's a note here saying Symphony Technology Group is purchasing RSA away from Dell. So there you go. Oh, my goodness. That's a that's a big change. We'll have to follow up on that in the future. Yeah, it says here there's a quote. Uh, As one of the world's elite security brands, RSA represents a great opportunity for solving some of the rapidly developing customer challenges that go along with digital transformation. I said William Chrisholm, managing partner of Symphony Technology Group. We are excited and fully committed to maximizing the power of RSA's talent, expertise, and tremendous growth potential, and continuing RSA's strategy to serve customers with a holistic approach to managing their digital risk. Awesome. So there you go. Well, wow. That's a big acquisition. Two, That's a big change. Two billion dollars. Yeah, two billion dollars in all cash transactions. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, Dell's Dell's having trouble supporting the cloud uh, and making that transition. So this probably helped them out a little bit. Well, a little a little plug for one of my very good friends, Todd Amont, who's actually a speaker at uh, at RSA this year. If you're interested in hearing a, I'm sure a really good, thoughtful session on PCI compliance, you're going to get it in his session. Ooh, very nice. Everyone loves good PCI uh, compliance talk. For sure. Well, that, that is it. So yeah, so next week, uh, security stuff, for sure, here on the CloudPod. Uh, we will talk about that, what's going on with RSA, and we will be back in your inbox very soon. So looking forward to all of that. Have a good uh, evening, both of you guys. You too. You too. Good night. 
And that is The Week in Cloud. We would like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag the Cloud Pod.